Hey, everybody. This is Chuck, and uh, welcome to this week's edition of the Stuff You Should Know Saturday Curated Selects. Uh, this week, I decided to go with how exploitation films work from April 14th, 2011. And uh, this one was an easy pick because I like all of our movie episodes. And uh, I think Josh might have put this one together way back in the day when we recorded it. And it was just a really cool one. Um, not only do we get to talk a lot about just some of the great exploitation films, but just a little bit about the history and how they came about. Uh, so I, I just remember really enjoying recording this one and got great feedback on it. So uh, give it a shot. And if you've already listened to it, uh, give it another shot is what I suggest. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. This is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast, and kind of a special edition, frankly. I am a little excited, Chuck. I'm a little giddy. Shut your mouth. <laughs> That's Yeah, okay. Yeah. Sure. All right. Um, this, is, uh, this is our first ever movie-centric podcast, right? Movie-centric for sure, yeah. We've mentioned uh, movies, of course, all the time, but this one is like... This yeah. is all about movies. Yeah. Um, so this is by by popular request to an extent. People want to see like... Um, uh, want, they they want to hear us talk about movies and just do a movie podcast. So we decided to focus on exploitation films. That's right. This is also probably the first podcast that we're going to say if you are a teacher of children in uh, eighth grade or younger and you're using this as a teaching tool, you might want to go to the one before this or the one after. <laughs> yeah. We don't generally try to alienate audiences. We're not attempting to now. It's just a natural byproduct of the exploitation film. Can't talk about exploitation films without talking about some lurid subject matter. Yeah. You can't, can't say exploitation without ploit. Yeah. They weren't exploiting just people being nice. Right. <laughs> nice exploitation. So, Chuck, I went and saw a movie the other day called I Saw the Devil. It's a Korean movie. It's by the guy who did um, A Tale of Two Sisters, I think. Oh, you said more violent than Old Boy? Yeah. The, the guy, Old Boy is... One of the main characters, and uh, I've seen Old Boy. I've seen um, uh, what's the other one he did? The vampire movie? Yeah, Thirst. I, I like didn't that. see that. I one. think it's pretty good. It was okay. Um, this one is—it's the most violent thing I've ever seen in my life. It's the most graphically violent movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, the only—the only reason it, like I was able to complete is because I'm like, this is—it's a movie. I, I, I know, right? But I walked out of it like it's so over the top, it's so gory. Right. It's clearly an exploitation film. Yeah. Alive and well. Yeah. But the problem is, is like, really, if you start to look around, John Hughes films technically are exploitation films. The Breakfast Club is technically an exploitation film. Yeah. The, uh, the, there was a big wave of teen exploitation films. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll get to that. But yeah, you're right. So one of the broader definitions of exploitation films is basically anything that's really like over the top that is beyond reality um, or that maybe focuses on people's fears, mm-hmm. um, uh, their their sexuality, yeah. um, and basically just kind of serves it up in a larger than life manner. That's one way of looking at exploitation films. Yeah, you're basically, they're exploiting um, some of the seedier uh, aspects of humanity most times. Sure. Like murder or sex, like um, weird sex, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Sex, Drugs. weird sex. 
teenagers rebelling against parents. Sure. That kind of thing. Like uh, weird science. Have you ever been to a party where a couch shot out of the chimney and into the pond? I mean, it's a pretty nice party. I don't think it's ever really happened, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so th- that's the vast definition of exploitation. But you and I are um, kind of qualified to teach a cin- cinema class at, like, maybe a, a low-level community college yeah. at this point, after the amount of research we've done in this. Sure. And we found that academically, there's a, there's a much more distinct um, definition for exploitation, and it's seemingly interchangeable term grindhouse, right? Yeah, what's the is there a definition definition? It's it's more like a time frame. Okay. So from like 1919 mm-hmm. when they really first started making movies to I think 1960, 1959 when the Hayes Act went away. Yeah, well, that was exploitation. And then after that, it was it became grindhouse. Okay. Gotcha. It's my understanding. Okay. So let's do this. All right. Well, that's the old joke was that uh, in, in the awesome documentary American Grindhouse, which documents this, this era of filmmaking, yeah. the old joke, one of the guys says, is that um, exploitation films began five minutes after the camera was invented, the yeah. motion picture camera. Because the guy was like, the director was like to his girlfriend, hey, would you mind taking your clothes off for the camera? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it says something about the human condition that uh, you invent the film camera and the first moving images were often lurid. Um, Edison's film, it showed clips of like decapitations. And violence and guys fighting, yeah, and n- naked women um, as film tests. So it's just that says a lot about people. Like, all right, now we know how to capture things, so let's capture sex and violence, right? First, and, right? And um, although that really kind of jibed with public taste or at least public fascination, uh, it didn't jibe with the uh, prevailing standards, the agreed upon standards, right? Right. Uh, I think you said 1919, but the first exploitation film was 1913. Oh, okay. Uh, Traffic in Souls mm-hmm. or While New York Sleeps. Right. <laughs> and that, like you said, exploitation often plays into fears. That played into the fear at the time of the white slave trade. Right. Uh, budget of 57 grand and gross $450,000, which 1913 is a lot of dough. That is a ton of dough. And that was Universal Pictures, and they went, hey, kind of onto something here. Right. After that was released, the Hayes Code. Um, Will Hayes was the postmaster general and a Presbyterian elder, um, and he was making a hundred grand a year during the depression. That's unbelievable, right? He uh, he basically said, like, look, we need um, we need to apply some moral standards to right. filmmaking. Mm-hmm. There's decapitation. There's naked breasts. There's there's white white slavery. Like, we need to we need to pure this up, right? Well, actually, there were, there wasn't nudity yet. Like those early test films there were, but nudity, we'll get to that later. Okay. Uh, but yes, that's what Hayes tried to do. And like um, Prohibition didn't exactly quell drinking, um, the Hayes Code actually sort of gave rise to the exploitation movement. Yeah. It's just like just like Prohibition, just like marijuana Prohibition, just like, well, any drug Prohibition. Anytime you say you can't do this, you can't have something that you want. The somebody else is going to operate in a black market. A black market's going to spring up simple economics. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened, and that's where exploitation cinema came up. It's like, you can't get this from Hollywood, because Hollywood has to play by the rules, but my production studio is uh, my Model T, and let's go make this movie. Give me some money. I'm going to film a child being born close up and put it in the movies. Yes. And you can do that. You can make your movies all day long, but if 
they're never exhibited, then what good are you doing? Or not like they were trying to do some good, but you're not making any scratch. So uh, the 40 Thieves they yeah. talk about in the, in the documentary were these uh, filmmakers and exhibitors, basically, that traveled around like carnies, uh, setting up these sort of guerrilla film screenings mm-hmm. in some places sort of out of the way where they can't get caught. And that was, uh, for the first time, you know, they were taking films outside of the mainstream. Yeah. different. Sometimes they weren't even theaters. They would show them in, like, VFW halls. And if you want to go see Birth of a Baby films, apparently they were popular. Yeah, that was a whole genre, early <laughs> yeah, genre of exploitation. Well, and so was um, early on a lot of the um, films centered around, uh, like, how to wear a condom and yeah. sex hygiene films. Yeah, because there was no information about that out there and so exploitation filmmakers whether um disingenuously or genuinely um were presenting their stuff like this is a public service people need to know this right and and making movies about it but it also and people were going on that excuse as well like well i need to i need to know about this but at the same time it's like I want to see this the the craziest thing I'll ever see in my life. Exactly, you know, right. on screen. Or they argued a lot of times that they were cautionary tales. If they were about uh, drugs or mm-hmm. violence, they would say, "Hey, this could happen to you." Yeah. So you should educate yourself. But what they really want to do is get their movie seen and make some money. Exactly. Um, Paramount decision of 1948. This is pretty big. The uh, Supreme Court voted that movie studios could no longer own their own movie theaters. At the time, you know, there would be like the Paramount Theater in Hollywood from the Paramount Film Production Company. Right. They would show their movies. Right. Supreme Court said no more. And all of a sudden, um, exploitation films became a little bit more legit because the Hays Code kind of fell apart. Yeah. And this is post-World War II, so... People had seen a lot of death recently. Well, a lot of death and then... Grown up a little more. They thought ladies uh, in uh, suggestive roles were good for morale and... There was a a little bit of loosening on the sex thing, a little bit post World War II. And Enough. That, that led to another subgenre um, of exploitation film, the nudist colony film, <laughs> yeah. which were which were pawned <laughs> off as documentaries. Uh-huh. Uh huh. A lot. Well, most of these were pawned off as decu- documentaries, which legitimized them. But really, it was maybe maybe it actually was filmed at a nudist camp. Probably not. Right. Mostly, they were actors and actresses just engaged in archery naked or um, long walks naked. Yeah, there and, could be no sex still. That was still no, taboo. But it was just like naked, pretty people. Right. At, at a nudist colony, which is interesting because you're not a nudist, so come learn about them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, after that, uh, through the history, we had things like um, the teen, like you said, the teen rebellion of the 50s with uh, Rebel Without a Cause mm-hmm. and Blackboard Jungle and movies like that all of a sudden were targeted specifically at teens, which was new. And then drive-in theaters were built so teenagers could see movies where their parents weren't going to be. Apparently, the adults didn't go to drive-ins a lot at first. Oh, yeah. It was all kids. I didn't know that. So they showed exploitation films and then later the beach films, which were marketed like as a, It's silly. It's Frankie Avalon, but yeah. they were decidedly weird and overtly sexual sometimes. And then, Chuck, if, you, if, if you'll notice, um, we're kind of progressing along in this... Um, um, chronological order yeah. and each thing is kind of being built on the last it was very much a step process right and um apparently that that was kind of the the form that exploitation filmmaking followed until 1960 it was just it was centered around drugs violence sex and in a lot of ways they were presented as documentaries they might not have a plot right um 
and it, 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 basically it was one person would make some film and it would just break all the rules and then the, a bunch of other people would make similar films right and, and the 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 same that that was the way it, it went and then um in the 1960s things just started to go every which way all sorts of directions right so yeah. nudity nudity films were a a, a long standing thread of exploitation films. Yeah. And then they probably reached their pinnacle with Russ Myers, right? King of the Nudies is what he's called. Yeah, he was the first guy to, he's significant because he was the first director to have films featuring nudity that actually were uh, dramatic narratives and mm-hmm. had plots yeah. and characters and they weren't classified as uh, documentaries anymore. And then the Ruffies came along and they offered up violence for the, not first time, but... Uh, big time for the first time. Right. And uh, that has a lot to do with the fact that it was the 60s and Kennedy was shot and the United States was just becoming increasingly violent. America lost its innocence. Yeah. Um, And the other thing that really happened in the uh, 1960s was the Hays Code officially went away, was replaced by the MPAA. And the... The I guess the long-standing um, prohibition on Hollywood producing exploitation films was it, it was lessened, decreased, yes. and so studios were like, "Oh, we can make money over here too." Well, let's start making exploitation films, right? And this is where Grindhouse is born. So my uh, cinema professor definition okay. of, of Grindhouse is big-budget studio-backed exploitation films. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's that's mine. I like it. That's going to be a quiz question later. Yeah, I'll go with that. Um, actually, back up one second. We got to mention uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. He was a director um, who had a co-director. I can't remember the other guy's name. Do you? Uh-uh. Anyway, he was a, he was a co-director, and he was one of these exploitation guys that was getting frustrated because there weren't a lot of places to show your movie, so it was a pretty crowded marketplace. Yeah. So he said, "What's the one taboo that like people will pay to see that you you're allowed to show in theaters?" But that uh, studios won't make. And it was gore. Oh, yeah. He was the first guy to start showing really disgusting, bloody scenes in his movie. uh, Blood Feast? Blood Feast. Yeah. Which actually was three years after Psycho. And Psycho also did a lot for the mainstream ushering in of. Sure. A little bit of gore in that. But there's like like a a shot of blood following Janet Lee's murder. That's right. You know, which I imagine is pretty graphic for Hollywood. Right. And that's what you think of. You're like, oh, those stupid 60s. But that's, you know, they were so naive. Yeah. Like, that was controversial. Not really, though. Like, if you step just slightly outside of Hollywood, you ran into things like uh, Blood Feast. Right. Or, you know. Last House on the Left. Yes. Well, that's 1972, I think. Yeah, Wes Craven. So that was important because um, all of a sudden, A, drugs started, uh, well, three things. Political uh, themes started popping up. Right. Sexual freedom, the youth generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, drugs started popping up in movies for the first time. Drug use. Well, not for the first time. No. We'll, we'll talk about Reefer Madness. Yeah. Um, but teenagers were depicted as victims of violence for the first time. Like, Last House on the Left, I believe, is kind of regarded as the first teen slasher film. Yeah. Wes Craven. It's, it was almost a snuff film. It was almost yeah. regarded like that. It's pretty hardcore. But yeah, it definitely, uh, Blood Feast definitely allowed uh, Last House on the Left to come around, but it also probably more directly um, formed the foundation for um, slasher exploitation like Friday the 13th or yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street. Absolutely. Um, My Bloody Valentine's another big one. The That's Crazies. Uh huh. Yeah. The Crazy. Oh, 
Yeah, that was an original, right? There's a remake now, I think. Yeah. Eh. Yeah. Remakes. So that brings us, we're in the 70s, um, politically charged movies uh, brought race into the to the mix, and all of a sudden we had uh, black exploitation or black exploitation uh, movement starting, yeah. exploiting the civil rights movement, basically. Yeah. But the cool thing about uh, black exploitation films is for the first time you had African Americans as heroes. Yeah, and not heroes in a typical sense, not even anti-heroes, yeah. but heroes that were like... They didn't ride into town on on a white horse or wearing a white hat. Right. They very um, clearly wore black hats if need be. Like they would engage in crime. They would murder people if need yeah. be. They were um they they were basically like the um face of Black America coming out of the civil rights era. Like we're ticked off. Yeah. You know, and, and we're gonna stick it to the white man. Stick it to the man. And we're gonna do it in these movies. Chuck, I know the movie you're about to um to mention. Let's. This is it. All right. You keep the faith in me, and you my man. You my favorite man. Can you take it, baby? So, yes, that was uh, a landmark film for a lot of reasons. One, because it grossed four million bucks. Mm-hmm. And it made the major studio say, hey, you know what? The Black Hero is marketable. Yeah, well, you haven't said the title yet. Oh, I didn't? No. Okay. And you got to say it right, too. <laughs> Melvin Van Peebles' film, uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Nice. Yep. That was well done. <laughs> that was 1971. Melvin Van, Van Peebles, whose last name may uh, sound familiar, he, he's the father of Mario Van Peebles, for you younger cats listening to this one. Um, cats our age, actually. Younger cats, because he's kind of like... Okay, so cats are a little watched up. Yeah, that's Mario Van Peebles' dad. You know, New yeah. Jack City. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Melvin Van Peebles made this movie. He produced it. He he raised the money for it. He wrote it. He directed it. He starred in it, mm-hmm. and it was the beginning of the black exploitation subgenre, which is pr- one of the most important genres of uh, any American c- f- cinema. Absolutely, ever. Absolutely. And so considering how important that subgenre is, this quote from Time Magazine's film critic Richard Corliss um, should really hit home. Sweet Sweetback uh, is, quote, without question or competition, the most influential movie by a black filmmaker. So this is a really big deal, right? Yeah, and it was it was just uh, quickly on the plot. It was about a, uh, a black man who was a gigolo. Who had Which a, is a male prostitute for yeah. you younger cats. <laughs> and he had a deal worked out with the cops where he was, he said, you know, you can arrest me as much as you want. Release me right afterward. Fill your quota. It's all good. And then one day, while the uh, arrest is going down, they um, the cops attack a Black Panther. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sweet Sweetback kills one of the cops. Mm-hmm. And then just says, he just goes on a, a rampage against the white man after that. Yep. So you've got um, prostitution, um, tons and tons of nudity and sex. Um, lots of violence um, and, and uh, other crimes, all wrapped up into a black power theme. That's right. Uh, and then uh, to top it all off, you have what is arguably a child sex scene 
starring Mario Van Peebles, Melvin Van That's Peebles' right. son, uh-huh. at, I think, age six. Yeah, he's a kid. Uh, having sex uh, as Sweet Sweet Pack. As it's his kid. first sexual encounter with yeah. an older person. Right. Um, and in the cult podcast, if he became a cult leader, he would have taken a younger bride, remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. So uh, if you're interested in, in that movie and you can't get enough of Sweet Sweetback's badass song, um, you could also check out um, Badass! Exclamation point, which is Mario Van Peebles' biopic about his father making that movie. That's right, and I have not seen that, but I wanted to at the time, and it just sort of slipped through the cracks. There's always Netflix, baby. That's right. Uh, and uh, what happened with um, Sweet Sweetback was that, like I said, that told the studios, hey, that we can market this. And so they got a little more mainstream with movies like Superfly, mm-hmm. which were a little safer. Shaft. Uh, Shaft, um, movies that wide audiences would enjoy as well. Yeah, the ones that didn't scare the man. Exactly. Like, Shaft's a good guy. He doesn't take any guff from the man, but the people he's not taking guff from are the cops, who he's really on the same side as. That's right. So, Chuck, um, black exploitation obviously huge. It, it affected everything from, um, you know, menace to society to Blackula. Yeah. All of that came from Sweet Sweetback. And um, we mentioned the guy who directed this next movie, Russ Myers. Um, this is probably a seminal work. Let's listen to, to this clip from the trailer. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, go, go for a wild, wild ride with the Watusi cats. But beware, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. For your own safety, see faster pussycat. Kill, kill. Wild women, wild wheels. Race the fastest pussycats and they'll beat you to death. Superwoman, belted, wild and booted. yourself on this kid and hanging it up for nothing. For nothing? It's got nothing to do with the money. She is the money. Jack and Jill, they make the mafia look like brownies. Hey, he's a big one, ain't he? <laughs> they make the mafia look like brownies. That's right. That says quite a bit about them. Um, so this that was Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Um, in 1965, Russ Myers, um, basically uh, women exploitation film, nudie film. So remember, Russ Myers was king of the nudies. King of the nudies. He made 26 movies, but this is probably, at the very least, his, his best known, uh, if not like his masterpiece. Yeah, and he hatched a slew of, uh, I mean, not that he wasn't legit, he was, but what mainstream people would call legit filmmakers were, came up through the Russ Meyer uh, film camp, basically. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, Russ Meyer also, little known fact, uh, uh, another movie that's mentioned in this article. There's an article on the site, by the way, called 10 Noteworthy Exploitation Films that this is based on. Yeah. Written by you. Yeah. Um, which I strongly recommend going to read because it has a lot of extra stuff we're not going to cover in this one. Yeah. Uh, or at least extra movies. But um, R- Russ Meyer directed a movie called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls 2. Right. Which was the bastard son of the legitimate film Beyond Valley of the right. Dolls. is a jiggle fest written by none other than Roger Ebert. That's right. Yeah. The only so, movie Roger Ebert ever wrote. Yeah. And he had a, um, yeah, it was a very brief career, but that's a, that's an illustrious one, really. Uh, yeah. So if you're going to talk about the plot of Faster Pussycat, kill, kill. Um, and I say that because there's three exclamation points. Faster and, Pussycat. And a comma. Exclamation point. Kill. Exclamation oh, no. Is it point, three exclamation kill. points? Yeah. Okay, I thought it was a comment then, too. All right, either way, that's a lot of punctuation for a film title. Right. And uh, it was about three bisexual go-go dancers. They go on a crime spree mm-hmm. out in the desert. And uh, what do they do? They end up 
killing a man and a, or no, they kill the man and, and keep, a couple. Keep, keep the, the girl. They basically empower her. Yeah, say, come on with by us. murdering her boyfriend, and she ends up on the crime spree with them. And they basically end up uh, going to an isolated house with a wheelchair-bound old man and his sons. Oh, who's a lech. They're all leches. They well, want yeah. these women. Yeah, but they don't know that these women are tough. No. Tough and, ladies. And the, 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 men and his son, the man and his sons apparently um, or allegedly have a large amount of cash stashed in this house. So it's kind of like a, a standoff of, of uh, gall to yeah. see who will come out on top. You know? <laughs> well, and you know who comes out on top. Yeah. Uh, and this film was uh, noteworthy uh, for one big reason was that uh, there was a lot of dualism toward gender. So on one hand, he's exploiting these women and apparently got women in their first trimester of pregnancy so they were more voluptuous yeah not in this film but in his other films oh, okay. he, he would hire um i can't remember the lady's name but the star of faster pussycat kill kill was in other russ myers films gotcha and um he made sure that she was like well into her third first trimester to to enhance her um natural bustiness that's right yeah her bosom if you will uh, but the script, like I said, it was dualism because while he did that, it also empowered women because the women in his films bowed to no man. No. They were the champs. They were the, he- they were heroines really for the first time. But they were, they were objectified very clearly, but at the same time, if you follow the script and really look at their characters, then yeah, they're, they're powerful women. And this, uh, kind of kicked off a big slew of women exploitation films, sexploitation films, the women in prison movies. Yes, which were sisters. Very big at the time. Uh, women were lead actors for the first time. They were aggressors for the first time. Uh, still nude, mm-hmm. often while they were doing this stuff. Spawn the television show, The Facts of Life. <laughs> but the interesting thing is they found that these movies appealed to men and women, because men would go see it for obvious reasons. Yeah, Women would go see it because it was empowering and... Uh, they didn't mind, you know, looking at the naked ladies because women are much more grown up sure. than men are. Yeah. <laughs> but, Josh, the 70s also got a little schlocky, which in a sense was true to the exploitation model. Yeah. They, like, they really went over the top. No more political statements. No more advancing of uh, uh, women's uh, gender mm-hmm. or, or African-Americans. Uh, it just got really schlocky and outrageous at that point. Well, what happened, it, starting in the 60s, but really took hold in the 70s, and then from that point on, was exploitation cinema early on showing a live birth, nudist camps. These were all geared toward adults. Yeah. In the 60s and then later on big time in the 70s, the audience became almost exclusively teenagers. Right. Like those drive-in teenagers or... Um, uh, well, teenagers anywhere. Who cares? Um, but they, the the audience was teenagers, and the cast started to become teenagers. So it had a little more of a bent on what teenagers were having to deal with, like bullying, like the 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 kid in in this next clip, right? Which is, I have to say, one of my favorite movies from way way back. Here we go with Toxic Avenger. Yeah. Meet little Melvin. He's a ninety pound weakling. Everyone hated Melvin. Yeah, I'm going to take this mop and shove it down your throat. They teased him. I'm going to do it with you. Okay. They taunted him. They tormented him until he had a horrifying accident and fell into a vat of nuclear waste. Transforming little Melvin into a hideously deformed creature of superhuman size and strength. Melvin became the Toxic Avenger. 
So, Josh, the Toxic Avenger movie was unique in that its film production company, Troma, mm-hmm. is very popular in their own right. Have you ever seen Surf Nazis Must Die? I haven't, but I know it's about Troma. I mean, they are master self-promoters yep. and marketeers. They have. They were one of the um, first production companies to have a website. Oh, really? Like a really comprehensive website. You should go on their website. Oh, it has, their whole catalog. It's uh-huh. um, really just well done. It's, and, it's schlocky, but it's well done. Right. And Toxic Avenger uh, follows the story of a, a 98-pound weakling uh, who was picked on, uh, released the same year as Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? 1984, right? Yeah, so it was. It occurred at zero year. At z- year zero. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll just put the null set okay. to represent that. And um, th- this kid gets uh, pushed out of a window into a vat of toxic sludge. Which, that's beyond bullying, really. Yeah, I mean, that, this is, basically it's a more twisted version of Modern Problems, the Chevy Chase film from a couple of years earlier. Okay. I haven't and, seen that one. Oh, you never saw Modern Problems? No. It's very silly. But he got toxic uh, sludge dumped on him and had special powers. From years earlier or prior or after? What? When was the movie? Yeah. It was two years before Toxic Avenger. Huh. But Toxic Avenger took it into a gore oh, sure. special effects uh, way that, that Modern Problems never did. So the the uh, janitor, Melvin, I believe his name is, um, becomes toxified. He becomes Toxie, the Toxic Avenger, yeah. who... Um, beats the tar out of people at the health club where he was abused and, and mutated um, and uh, has tons of sex as the Toxic Avenger because his um, newfound manhood is just irresistible to women. And um, one, one of the things that's noteworthy about the Toxic Avenger is that they actually tried to make decent effects. Yeah. It wasn't just, it wasn't horrible, I guess you could say. Well, for the time, you know, it wasn't bad. no. They they remain bad, and they probably were kind of bad even back then. But for 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 grindhouse films, yeah, they, they, they were they were great, right? Um, and uh, it was also noteworthy because it came out of Troma Productions or Troma Studios, um, and it led to a whole line of Toxic Avenger movies and schlock in general, which is basically like some crazy horrible thing has happened, but we're not gonna dwell too much on that. Let's see what let's let's see where the action takes us. Yeah, exactly. So like um Bad Taste, the Peter Jack Peter Jackson's uh-huh. first film right. is a great example of schlock that came out of Toxic Avenger. And he had the uh film that followed Peter Jackson, Dead Alive, which was at one point supposedly the goriest film ever made. Really? Although it sounds like your uh, new Korean movie has surpassed that. Yeah. I, I think it probably has. I haven't seen Dead Alive. I've seen Bad Taste, and Bad Taste was horribly gory. But I think this has it beat. Yeah, but I bet you, if anything, I mean, I haven't seen the one you're talking about. But is it more realistic gore? Uh, yeah, with Bad like, Taste, it's, really it's like these are aliens that are having their heads blown off. So it yeah. definitely takes you at least a a, um, a a degree away from caring. Right. This is happening to human beings in in um, I Saw the Devil. Gotcha. So it definitely is driven home a little more. Well, and and the violence, the, even the gore back then, it was so over the top, right out of Fangora magazine. It's like, you know. Dude, Fangoria is still around. Is it? Yeah. I figured it was. I, I, I'm glad it is. We follow it on our Twitter feed. Oh, we do? Yep. Yeah. Like a head will explode in scanners. And, you know, it's not disturbing because it's so clearly over the top. But these new movies are much more disturbing, if you ask me. I agree wholeheartedly because they're more realistic. Yeah. Um. So carrying on with uh, Chuck's and my Siskel and Ebert act. <laughs> Uh, this is uh, the second-to-last movie in our little list today. And um, this one's from way back, from the 30s. So let's talk about Reefer Madness. 
These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Or watch case. If you want a good smoke, try one of these. You will meet Bill, who once took pride in his strong will as he takes the first step toward enslavement. So that was the excellent Reefer Madness, which was an exploitation, a drug exploitation film. Yeah, and very much a cautionary tale. It, it even shaped the drug culture and how uh, people looked at drugs as, as, you know, marijuana at the time is this really evil thing that can make you crazy and kill people. Yeah, and actually, in in very much the uh, vein of early exploitation films, it was produced and distributed. Um, as a uh, a public service, like the was it? the okay. alternate title for it was um, "Tell Your Children," and the whole thing set in, in a PTA meeting, right. where this guy is relating the story, uh-huh. and it's a story about lost lives, about murder, about um, guilt and paranoia, and all of it is fed and based on rampant drug use, which is really just a lot of pot smoking, um, which can turn you into a fiend and. Um, it's apparently the director, uh, his name is Dwayne Esper. Uh-huh. He did uh, other exploitation films from the 30s like Sex Madness, right. Psychotic Connections. Um, and he made a name for himself basically taking these things that may have originally been written as a public service right. and making them so outlandish that he exploited the people who were making these movies right. and, and created this legacy of like just insanely over-the-top exploitation films from the 30s. Well, and ironically, Reefer Madness, uh, years later, would become um, not so much an anti-drug propaganda film, how should I say this, but a film that college students would sit around and watch while partaking and laughing at this whole thing. Yeah. And a cult film. Yeah, because it it, it puts drugs so far out there that... um, if you, despite all the warnings, take drugs anyway, and you realize that you don't turn into a fiend and murder somebody, um, you uh, Re- Reefer Madness basically dares you to go further. So it's kind of an uh, it's the opposite. It has the opposite effect of what I think its original intent was before yeah. Dwayne Esper got his hands on it. And as a side note, uh, I had trouble deciding between Reefer Madness and another 1930s film by a guy named Todd Browning called Freaks. Oh yeah. Well, that was um that was huge because it was the first big exploitation film pre Hayes Code or the, and last. Yeah. First and, and last. And it was it was an MGM film. Yeah. And it's widely considered a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, it looks great. It's it's not it was well done. It's a huge um it's a it's a revenge movie, which uh-huh. is a very common theme in um exploitation films. Yeah. Especially violent ones, but it's it it featured Browning dared to um, have real freaks, I guess, if you'll... Yeah, if you'll, circus, circus sideshow freaks. Yeah, it was about. Um, star in this. Uh-huh. Uh, and they basically exact their revenge on people who've mistreated them. Yeah. And uh, I have not seen it. 
Have oh, you? really? Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to. I hear it's just awesome. I can't it's wait. It's good. It ended his career, though, unfortunately. Did it really? Yeah. Oh, and he was a, a popular filmmaker at the time. Well, hats off to him for, for staying true to his art. Chuck just took his hat off. Don the old cap. All right, Chuck, here's the last one that we've got a clip for, um, which I think everybody will notice um, or recognize. Without even a word, there's not even a word in this clip, and you will understand what's going on. So uh, here we go. Josh, those are the unmistakable sounds of Fist of Fury of Mr. Uh, one Mr. Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee, Kicking Bottom. His first movie. Yeah, um, which uh, was originally titled, well, it's still titled, I think, in Asia, The Big Boss. Um, and uh, in America, it is, it's it's titled Fist of Fury. Yeah, it was on the other night on cable. I saw part of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I didn't realize it was his first one, though. I would have tuned in. Yeah, and it was first of, what, um, five? Five major films. Right. Uh, and basically, it's the story of a martial arts student who's investigating the murder of his teacher. And um, it began uh, the martial arts exploitation subgenre. Which later would become just martial arts films, right? Or was it still considered exploitation? It's all the same. Okay. They're one and the same. Anything gotcha. that even remotely resembles a Bruce Lee movie, specifically The Big Boss or yeah. any of them, is martial arts exploitation technically um, because, again, we arrive at that one definition. It's over the top. Like Bruce Lee's taking on scores of anonymous thugs um, for two hours. One after the other for yeah. two hours, just beating the tar out of all yeah. these people without tiring, really. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's kind of waiting their turn politely in a circle around him, and he has to beat everybody. Right. And then he works his way up, and yeah. it's over the top. So it is exploitation, but um, it led to other films like Samurai Exploitation. Remember American Ninja? Remember the whole Ninja film thing that, that came uh, out yeah, in the sure. mid-'80s? Uh-huh. That's from Bruce Lee's... Um, that's Bruce Lee's doing. Well, yeah, and you go to these at the time when I was first going to New York many years ago. There would be, uh, you know, you go to Times Square, and this is still when Times Square was kind of gross. And there would be just the the martial arts movie store where it was all that stuff, man, yeah. like thousands of movies about ninjas and samurais yeah. and martial artists and uh, very big. Yeah. I was inspired by American Ninja to become a ninja. Remember I entered uh, really? ninja training with Tommy Roper. <laughs> Who had like more throwing stars than any kid I've ever known? Right. Yeah. What did you have like one throwing star? I borrowed his. Oh, okay, I was not allowed to have throwing stars of my own. Oh, I wasn't either. Yeah, Baptist. No, no, that was very violent. No I think, nunchucks. I think that no, even like that, that transcends like religious background. It's like if you're a good parent, you <laughs> yeah. shouldn't let your kid have throwing star. That's a good point. Uh, and as you pointed in the article, this actually led to another subgenre, which was Bruce Lee lookalike. Movies. Yeah, so he made five movies died and young. then died at age 32 yeah. in 1973. So Big Boss released in 1971. He dies two years later. Everybody's like, no! So let's find some guys that look like him, yeah. which is really kind of stereotypical and racist yeah, for sure. uh, the West. But let's um, Bruce Lee, L-I or L-E-E. Or L-E. Or just L-E. They're, well, Bruce L-I or uh-huh. Bruce L-E. Right. Um, 
I don't think there was ever like uh, um, Bruce L E I G H. I don't think it ever got that far. <laughs> but I mean, they released dozens of Bruce Lee, and I just made air quote films. Yeah. yeah. There, so Bruce Lee created the martial arts exploitation genre and subgenre. And he inadvertently created the Bruce Lee exploitation subgenre of the martial arts exploitation subgenre. By dying young. Yeah. And being very popular. Yeah. And uh, which one was the one he had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in? Was that Enter the Dragon? Enter the Dragon. Yeah. Yeah. If you've never seen a like seven foot plus guy do uh, martial arts, you should check that out. And uh, if you can't get enough Bruce Lee, and you have a uh, a good sense of humor, check out Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah, made by one uh, Jerry, Zucker, right. who, Jerry Zucker, who we met uh-huh. in in Los Angeles recently, um, and who fantastic. used an expletive to me. <laughs> he did. It was one of the high points of my life. It is. Um, but yeah, Kentucky Fried Movie, awesome. Actually, when we met Jerry Zucker, we told him that our little speech we were given that night was one of the highlights of our career thus far. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, it doesn't say much about your career, does it? <laughs> <laughs> like the first thing the dude did is yeah. say something funny. And we just like kind of fawned over him we after did. that. Uh, we should mention briefly, and it's in the article, but uh, just as a teaser, uh, the late 70s, we got Nazi exploitation movies. N- Nazi as a, exploitation. As a subgenre. Yeah. And one of the major players there, movie-wise, was Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. Yeah, which led to Ilsa um, Siberian Tigress and Ilsa Harem Keeper of the Oil Sheiks. Really? There's a whole f- sex violence franchise, dominatrix franchise, that was based out of the Nazi exploitation film. You know, one could argue that QT, Mr. Tarantino, has made nothing but exploitation films yeah. since Pulp Fiction. Because the, the Kill Bills were definitely martial arts exploitation. Definitely. The uh, Jackie Brown was a riff on uh, on black exploitation. Sure. Uh, Death Proof, obviously, that was what they were trying to do there. Well, Death Proof is car exploitation, which follows in the tradition of Vanishing Point, right? Um, which was released the same year as basically its rival to the um, the founder, the founding movie of car exploitation, Tulane Blacktop. Right. Which, Great movie. Yeah. If you want to start an argument with a, a, an exploitation film buff, tell them Vanishing Point was the, the beginning of car exploitation. <laughs> They'll get mad at you. And then finally, uh, Tarantino with the uh, Inglorious Bastards, which was clearly a, a riff on the Nazi exploitation films. Yeah. Beaten Nazis to death with a baseball bat. That's yeah. about as over the top and lurid as it it's gets. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then Machete. I hated it, but Robert Rodriguez, um, it's terrible. And, of course, he was the other half of the, uh, Rodriguez was the other half with his Planet Terra of the Grindhouse double feature. Yeah. Okay. And Machete was born from one of the little fake trailers they made in that movie. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it was one of the, the fake uh, movie previews. It is, even as far as like a purposefully B movie. Not good. No. Well, Death Proof was okay, but I didn't like Planet Terra that much. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Chuck... Well, first of all, before we get to today, we also have to give a shout-out to pornos. Porno came out of the exploitation film genre. And it arguably had a lot to do with killing um, the ex- or pushing it into the mainstream. Because once you had the movie Deep Throat and all of a sudden a pornography was on the screen, mm-hmm. it's like you can't do an exploitation film about it anymore. If there's the real deal going on, it, it loses all its power. Right. And then a little movie called Jaws came along. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, a quote-unquote B-movie style movie made gobs and gobs of money. And that put a little bit of uh, mainstream respectability on the map all of a sudden. And so one might argue, Josh, (laughs) that uh, movies like Jaws and pornography Mm -hmm. kind of shoved exploitation films, even though they still exist. They're sort of mainstream movies now. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I guess another word for Grindhouse these days is blockbuster. Jaws was the first blockbuster yeah. movie, summer blockbuster. And now you have to have summer blockbusters, and they're always over the top right. and exploitive of viewers' tastes. And not only Tarantino, there's other filmmakers out that are trying to capture that 70s vibe mm-hmm. with overt exploitation films mm-hmm. again. Shot that way, shot on uh, uh, 35, or I'm sorry, uh, 16 millimeter film, stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, Chuck, I say our message to everybody is number one, go onto the site, read uh, 10 noteworthy exploitation films. Um, Number two, if that interests you, like even the 10 noteworthy exploitation films I chose um, don't cover even, I think, a third of the exploitation subgenres. So there'll probably be another article forthcoming at some point. If there is, we'll let you know. And then go watch some exploitation movies and enjoy them. Yeah, watch uh, the documentary American Grindhouse, too, if you're into that. Yeah, it's a great one. It's free on Hulu, actually. Um, There's ads, but Hulu.com has American Grindhouse for free. It is not safe for work. No. In no way, shape, or form. I was watching it at work, and I was like, whoa, okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. If you are watching it at work, tab browsing is what you want to be doing. Right. And keep your your finger over the mouse and uh, keep the cursor over the other tab. Right. And stay sharp. Or in our case, you can just say... It's research. But you can't do that if, you, if you're if you an accountant at no. uh, J.P. Morgan. You're just a sicko, a yeah. weirdo. That's right. That weird guy in accounting. Um, so look up 10 noteworthy exploitation films. You can type that into the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And now, at long last, it's time for listener mail. Joshers, I'm going to call this, uh, it's a small world after all. Uh, dear guys, I'm a longtime fan from Minnesota. And enjoy spreading stuff you should know, goodness, wherever I go. My coworkers at a local coffee shop know me for the trivia and information I abound in. Uh, but after giving <laughs> Wait, what? That he he says he abounds in, I guess that he's proficient in. Okay. Did he misuse that? No? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it sounds hilarious. It does. Um, after giving credit where credit is due, which means us, uh, several of them decided to subscribe to your podcast. Uh, listening to the podcast has also given me an advantage at work. For thinking of the coffee shop's daily trivia question, which saves people 10 cents on their drink if nice. they know it. That is awesome. Uh, after re-listening to how Legos work, I set the trivia question for which company produces the most tires on a yearly basis? A. Bridgestone, B. Goodyear, C. Lego Bricks. You know the answer, Josh? <laughs> most people were surprised and pleased to find out it was Lego Bricks, uh, reminding them about the little play sets that their kids enjoy. Uh, this is where it gets weird. One of the customers read the trivia question, looked at me, and said, It's a Ponzi scheme. Nice. That's awesome. In the best Italian accent he could muster, everyone else gave him an odd look. I started laughing. He apologized and then say and said he just heard it on a podcast. Um, he had just listened to Legos followed by Ponzi schemes. Long story short, we were both pleased to find out that we were both fans. Uh, we are now on a first-name basis, eager to discuss the most recent episodes. So these dudes in Minneapolis, Daniel. That's awesome. Thanks, Daniel. And his friend now, his new friend. His unnamed friend. Yeah, he didn't name him. You wouldn't know him. You met him at camp. That's right, band camp. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Daniel. That's really awesome. Um, Wow, that's really cool. Let let us know if you tweet um, those daily facts for your uh, coffee house, because we will start following you. Indeed. That'd be very cool. Um... If you want to follow us, we have our own Twitter feed. Seriously, it's called SYSK Podcast. One word. 10,000 strong plus. Yeah. Um, we're on, uh, no, we're up to like 11 and change. 
That's plus 10. That's true. <laughs> um, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash stuff you should know. Yep. We have a Kiva team, right? We're trying to get to half a million dollars. That's right. Uh, that's K-I-V-A dot org slash team slash stuff you should know. Uh, and then you can always send us a good old-fashioned email. Um, we want to know what your favorite um, exploitation film of all time is. Uh, you can send that in an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 